HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right, it is Monday, it's 12 o'clock, and it is time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We are going to jump right to my guest today, because uh, unlike me, he has an important job, and um, he does important things in this world, (laughs) and he has an important meeting uh, about 15 minutes before we end this program, so we're going to get right to business with uh, my guest today, Tim Fitzgerald. You may have heard him on this show uh, several times in the past, although it's been quite a while. Uh, Tim directs the impact division of the Environmental Defense Fund's Fishery Solutions Center, uh, leading its global programs on training, seafood markets, supply chain engagement, and fisheries finance. He is also serving on the board of Ecofish LLC and Gulf, Gulf Wild, and is an advisor to Fair Trade USA, the Conservation Alliance for Seafood Solutions. Welcome back to the show, Tim. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much for giving me your time today. Thanks, Katie. I think that's the first time I've been described as an important guy with an important job. My mom would be very proud. Well, you just have to play that in a loop for her over and over. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets the picture. You mean your mom does not appreciate what a rock star you are? That's just shameful. She needs to have, you need to give me your number. Well, it's, been, it's been 15 years and I, I, I'm still not sure she really knows what I do, but um, oh. it's great oh. to be back with you today. <laughs> well, you can go ahead and send me your number and I'll give her a call and spell it out for her. Um, so Tim, tell us, um, first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about how the fisheries are doing. Um, you know, I, you and I talked about maybe talking about catch shares and, and versus tournaments and stuff like that. And I know it's, it's really wonky, but um, that whole system of catch shares, which uh, I believe was instituted in the 90s, right, under the Magnus-Stevenson Act, 
Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm a little sketchy about the fishing industry. Um, but that really was a big uh, game changer for the fishing industry. Uh, can you tell us how it, how it has worked or not worked and what's going on? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, it's a great time to be talking about fisheries. It's a great time to be working on fisheries in the U.S. Um, we've really seen a pretty remarkable recovery in our um, in our American fisheries in the last decade or so. That's great. Uh, a lot of that can really be attributed to the success of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is kind of like the farm bill for fish. Um, it's, it's the overarching federal law that... Um, kind of underpins everything we do on on fisheries in the U.S. from from science to management and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets reauthorized every 10 years. And so it's it's a pretty big deal when it gets redone. And, and the last version was, was redone in 2007. And it really laid the foundation for, most importantly, recovering fisheries that were overexploited or overfished and putting some real legal teeth behind that process. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in this last 10 years, we've really gotten much better about um, understanding how much fishing is okay and really sticking to it when we need to rebuild fisheries. And, and as a result of that, our, our U.S. fisheries are in much better shape. Um, and that's, that's something to celebrate. Absolutely. Um, so aside from the United States, have other, uh, because I know other countries must have suffered through the same problems that we have in terms of fisheries and over overfishing. Um, have they adopted before or after us any sort of version of the same thing, of the same kind of idea of, of working out a catch share program where people can't just like willy nilly scoop up as much as they can, as they want. Um, and then, you know, go home and count their <laughs> diminishing returns. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're we've certainly done a great job in the U.S. We're not we're not the only country to have gotten their um, their fisheries under responsible management. In fact, a lot of the things that have made uh, the U.S. successful are things that uh, a handful of other countries have adopted as well. So countries like Iceland or New Zealand um, or even some places that people wouldn't think about, like Chile or Namibia or wow. South Africa. Um, these are all places that, for the most part, do two things really well, and these are, these are really the two fundamental things you need for, for good fisheries management. One is they have a good system of figuring out how much fish is in the water and how much fish is okay to take out. That's kind of the science side of the equation. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of the equation is, uh, you know, how do you ensure that you're sticking to those scientifically set limits? And that's really where management comes in. So if you have good science, that's great. If you have good management, that's great. If you're good at both, then that's, that's exceptional. Yeah. And so there's probably, um, you know, eight to ten countries in the world that do both of those really well. And luckily, I think we're, the U.S. now finds itself in that category. Oh, that's wonderful. And so, that's not to say that everything here is perfect and that we don't still have problems that need figuring out. Right. 
Well, I still run across, you know, I'm a, from a coastal state. I'm from Rhode Island originally. I spend a lot of time up there. And um, and from time to time, I run across fishermen who are still grinding their teeth and muttering under their breath about how the government needs to get out of the fishing industry. They have clearly not completely come around to the concept of catch shares, um, even though uh, empirically it would seem like, you know, it's been a real boon to them because obviously the fishing industry took such a hit in the 70s and 80s. Um, mm-hmm. and really died away very much so uh, on, in the New England uh, part of the world. And um, and now it's obviously much better, and yet there's still some pushback. So what do you think accounts for that? So let me get this straight. There, You've encountered some ornery fishermen in New England? Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, New England, is, New England is a good example of a place where you know, there's still improvements to be made. There's still <laughs> uh, fish stocks that are struggling. Yeah. Uh, and that have not come back as quickly as we would have hoped. Um, you know, going going to the issue of catch share specifically, a lot of times, and we've seen this in several places in the U.S., um, catch shares get implemented when the fishery is in crisis. Right. And the fishery is usually in crisis for a number of reasons. Um, and... In lots of places, we've seen uh, catch shares really help a lot of those characteristics. Uh, there's a lot of fisheries in, in Alaska that were in terrible shape that switched over to catch shares, you know, or a version of, of rights-based management or, or fishing rights or whatever you want to call it, uh-huh. and are now seen as real models of sustainability. Um, and we think that's still possible in New England, but... Uh, especially in the ground fish fishery, which is uh, where cod is caught. The cod is kind of the iconic New England yeah. fishery. Um, cod had been overfished for probably 20 or 30 years yeah. um, before before catch shares came into place. So I think as much as we would like to see that turned around overnight, it's not really realistic to, to expect that quick of a change. And... Um, New England people have been fishing and and overfishing in New England for quite some time, mm. and it's it, it's going to take a little more time to get that figured out. Now, there's much better science in place. Um, I think we have a much better sense of what's being caught and what's not being caught, so we can continue to to tweak that equation. Um, right. But it is it is it is going to take a little bit of time, and unfortunately, while that's happening. Um, you know, communities are suffering, fishermen are not as profitable as they could be, and um, we're, you know, everyone is working as hard as they can to to, to help improve that situation. Oh, I'm sure that's true. Well, that, that leads me to the next uh, question, which is one of the things that has been, um, you know, going on, especially uh, through, for instance, Chefs Collaborative, uh, my sponsor for this program, as it happens, and a, an organization of which I am a proud member. Um, but they, the, you know, the chefs there have been promoting the concept of trash fish. I mean, nobody really loves the name trash fish, but it is a name that implies something that, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, is it bycatch? No, it's not bycatch, but it's just fish species that are not necessarily considered or haven't been considered in the past the most um, desirable. And so now all these chefs are promoting the idea of, of using these, um, these alternate species. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how that's working and um, if that's having any impact on the reviving of, of more traditional uh, fish that people are used to. 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. It's a great movement. Um, Chefs Collaborative is, is wonderful. We've done uh, a number of initiatives with them, especially around uh, underloved or underappreciated fish. Underloved, uh, I like that. Much nothing gets than a fisherman trash. more riled up than calling it trash fish, so we try right? not to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hate that name. <laughs> um, but chefs have really been leading on this front. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons it's so important is that. Um, 60% of all the fish we eat in the U.S. is shrimp, salmon, or tuna. Yeah. If you add whitefish, which, uh, you know, is a couple of different fish, like cod and pollock and things like that, the number jumps to 80%. Oof. So um, <laughs> that makes up just a huge amount of the seafood that is eaten in the United States. And so the remaining 20% is all of the hundreds of other species uh, that we catch commercially or farm commercially in the ocean. And so um, given how many fisheries there are in the United States, if we want as many of them as possible to be healthy both ecologically and economically, uh, we actually have to broaden our palates and, and start thinking about ways to bring more types of seafood into our homes and onto our plates. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, of course. And I, I'm just wondering why uh, why it has been so slow to uh, move out of restaurants and into grocery stores and into fish, you know, fish markets. You know what I mean? Like when I go to a fish market, I still see the same old, same old. I'm not seeing, you know what I mean, though? I'm not seeing a lot of new, new species. I'm trying to, you know, I don't eat fish, even though I'm a New Englander. I just never developed a taste for it. Or maybe uh, I ate too much of it. I don't know. But anyway, but, you know, you still see the same old stuff and that there's all these new things coming out like sea robin or um, there's something off of the coast of North Carolina that's gotten very popular, like angelfish or something. I don't know what it's called. Um, but, you know, some of these alternative species are not being picked up by the big commercial um, fish brokers, I guess. Is that what's holding it up from getting it onto people's plates outside of a restaurant setting, do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I think those are all contributing factors. It, luckily, we have seen very uh, unknown or even undesirable fish kind of make it into the American um, uh, seafood mainstream, if you will, things like Chilean sea bass and orange roughy and monkfish and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, it may have taken a few years, but but then all of a sudden, through a combination of factors, did become very popular. So uh, we know it's possible. I think it's uh, it's just a matter of catching that lightning in a bottle. And there are lots of great regional campaigns around the country focusing on a couple of different species. Um, we, have a, we have a program at EDF called Eat These Fish, uh-huh. which is um, a celebration of 12 different fish from around the country that are both well-managed, um, kind of caught at or even under sustainable levels, uh, but just haven't really uh, been the focus of a lot of regional or national attention. And so we're hoping through Eat These Fish and, and lots of other groups have similar campaigns that we can um, get some more sustainable local fish out into the marketplace 
And whether that's through food service or restaurants or grocery stores or what have you, um, just get more people eating more locally, um, which is, is hard to do in fish. But uh, the good news is there's plenty of um, there's plenty of great options from around the country to pick from. So if you were in New England and you wanted to have, um, I don't know, uh, say you wanted to have, isn't Chilean sea bass like off the list now? Like you're not supposed to, or say you wanted to have bluefin tuna. Okay. That's off the list. We all know that. Right, what no would you have? Tuna. Yeah. What would you have instead? I mean, like how do people understand like, oh, I was looking for halibut, but I can't get halibut. So I should have. Is right. there a, a sort of an equivalency chart for consumers? Because I think that, I think, you know, part of the difficulty of introducing new species to a consumer palate is they don't know mm-hmm. what it's going to be like. So if I wanted to have this, but I can't, what's going to be the closest thing to it? And I'm wondering if there's any initiative in that sort of consumer education uh, bubble there uh, that would help people embrace uh, new species without necessarily having to go through that long, steep learning curve of trying it in restaurants or whatever. Yeah, definitely. We uh, we try very hard to do that on Eat These Fish, especially um, since in a lot of the fisheries that are profiled, uh, the the healthy ones are, are have kind of been overlooked because so much attention has been placed on the overexploited ones. Right. And in so so in New England, if you're if you're used to having cod from New England and you can't get that anymore because um, the the catch limits are so low now, um, you actually have a lot of great options that are still caught by many of those same fishermen and. Right from a culinary perspective, are actually very similar. So you have things like pollock or hake or whiting, depending on where you're right. from and what you call it. Um, those are those are a handful of fish that are in the same family as cod. They're white fish. Uh, you can use them in a lot of the same recipes uh, that are very abundant and that uh, are probably going to be really critical to keeping those fishermen in business while they're not able to catch things like cod. Right. So um, Eat These Fish has a bunch of that information. A lot of the, the traditional seafood guides like uh, EDF Seafood Selector or Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, mm-hmm. um, they do have tools for uh, substitutions if you really have your heart set on a certain fish and it's not sustainable or it's not available. Right, right. Um, I want to move forward into sort of like well, two things. One is government. And secondly, but also the other thing that really, um, you know, because I follow the meat industry so closely and the consolidation of the meat industry has led to a lot of issues for farmers and ranchers. And do you, is there a consolidation in the fishing industry that would be considered parallel to that? Or is fishing still a largely independent um, activity or, or profession? Definitely not to the same extent. The The seafood industry is uh, definitely got some unique characters that make that type of consolidation a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. At least in the U.S., um, you know, the biggest the biggest seafood or fishing company in the U.S. is probably on the order of one to one and a half billion dollars a year. Right. Which don't get me wrong, that's a big company, but yeah. when you compare it to some of the agriculture sure. uh, conglomerates, it 
it's not even in the same league. Well, just to, just to put it into, into real numbers, I happen to know that, for instance, in 2015, uh, JBS, which is the big Brazilian giant meat conglomerate, um, their net profit uh, for the year of 2015 or 14 was on the order of half of, of $500 billion. <laughs> net profit. Okay. So, yeah. 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 Uh, so that puts that fishing I thing think, into. <laughs> I think the, uh, the, 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 the folks in the seafood industry would love to be in the same conversation yeah. as that. But, uh, you know, fishing, fishing is expensive. Yeah. And um, I think the supply chains are definitely much more compartmentalized uh, than you see in big ag. So, um, there's, there are certain commodities within seafood, like salmon, for example. Farmed salmon is one place where you do see a lot of consolidation because the companies that farm salmon started buying up the companies that made the feed uh-huh. and the companies that did the logistics and the companies right. that did the, the shipping and all those sorts of yeah, things. all that so, vertical integration, like in the poultry industry. Yeah. Right. Those, the, that... That is not big in the United States, but that is a trend we've, we've seen globally in the seafood industry and, and perhaps in a couple of other things like tuna where margins are very small and you really need to be big to be profitable. Right, right. Is there, like, is there a certain amount of rivalry? Um, because I know that some fishing boats, you know, there's, most people have a small, small boat or two or three in a fleet. Um, and they're and they're coming up against these giant trawlers with these huge per se nets that are just like scooping up you know thousands of pounds of seafood at a pass. I mean, mm-hmm. how much you know how how much of an impact does that have on sort of the local element? And then also, who are those people? Like, are they just guys that had you know a lot of boats and traded them in like Monopoly from houses to hotels? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, is that how that worked? Or is it like a big company that says, oh, I'm going to go into the industry and we're going to like, you know, just spend a lot of money and make a lot of money? Um, I think this this is probably another place where um, fish has a lot of its own unique quirks mm-hmm. um, and, and really varies fishery to fishery, maybe more so than in some terrestrial or ag examples. Right. There are definitely fisheries where you have big boats and small boats, and they hate each other, and yeah. um, you know they can't get along, and and they fight over the same fishing grounds and things like that. But um, a lot of fisheries tend, to, at least in the United States, tend to fall into one category or the other. Uh-huh. So they're they're all kind of smaller smaller boat near shore types of fisheries, or they're right. you know bigger offshore more. Um, industrial types of operations. If you think of the Alaska Pollock fishery, which is caught out in the middle of the Bering Sea, uh-huh. you're not going out there to catch Pollock in a 40-foot boat. I see. Or if you are, you're crazy, and you're <laughs> not going to be doing it for very long. <laughs> right, right. Um, and given that that fishery is allowed to catch something on the order of 3 billion pounds of fish a year, Wow. Um, and depending on the year and what happens with El Nino is, is often the biggest fishery in the world. Um, that, you know, just by its nature has to be a fishery that's prosecuted by larger boats. Sure. Um, and, and, and bigger operations. Right. Otherwise, it just cannot be profitable because the price for Pollock, because that's considered, I wouldn't say a trash fish, but it's, it's a sort of an all-purpose fish that's used for everything, Right. 
I mean, from fish sticks to, right. you know, crab legs to, you know, whatever they call it. You know, like they put it into sushi. I mean, it's it's kind of like they dye it and make it look like crab and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. It's used in everything. And, yeah. and you know, it's, it's a great example of, uh, you know, sustainable seafood does not have to be expensive seafood. Mm-hmm. That is a very widely used, very affordable seafood that was one of the first that was certified by the Marine Stewardship Council. So it's... Mm. Um, it's a really interesting example, and um, if you contrast it with something like red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, which has made a lot of sustainability progress over the last, uh, you know, eight to ten years, yeah, I think the biggest boat in that fishery is probably seventy-five feet. Wow! And a lot of them are, you know, in the probably in the 40 to 60 range and they're catching fish a couple hooks at a time and um it's It's i think even though it gets a lot of attention i would still consider it a a very kind of um small-scale fishery oh yeah absolutely um just i don't want to stay too long talking about um pollock but does it reproduce incredibly fast and that's why you can take 300 uh, you know hundreds billions or whatever it is however many pounds you said a year out of the ocean i mean it must reproduce like you know i i don't know like mice (laughs) (laughs) yeah pollock is uh especially in alaska where again being the biggest fishery they uh, they spend a lot of money on the science. They spend a lot of money on enforcement. They they know that they have a really good thing going, and they don't want to mess it up. And so right. they know uh, through surveys, through all kinds of statistical methods, um, probably more so than almost any fishery in the world, exactly how much fish is out there to mm-hmm. be caught or out there, and, and then what proportion of that they, they can be catching sustainably. Right. Um, and they they have it down to a very exact science. And Alaska also does this very interesting thing where um, they cap the total amount of ground fish, which is pollock and cod and halibut and all that stuff yeah. that lives near the ocean floor. They set a, an annual cap of two million tons every year. Oh wow! Even even if the even if the sustainability limits for each individual fishery add up to more than that. Uh-huh. So that seems smart. If you just looked at how much pollock could be sustainably caught, it's it's actually way higher. But since they have this this uh this total cap of two million tons, it kind of forces them to catch less than what the science says they actually could. Oh, that's great. I mean So they're they're leaving a lot more in the water than they could be if they were just managing it on a species by species basis. I see. And and, and but that, that particular little wrinkle of regulation has not penetrated other parts of the country in terms of managing their own local fish, it would appear. I don't know of any place that has it set up in in such a way like Alaska does, but mm-hmm. There are there are councils and regions and fisheries that are getting better about understanding and hopefully managing to the fact that um, fisheries don't exist in a vacuum and just managing one species at a time probably doesn't totally encapsulate all of the effects that are happening in the ecosystem mm-hmm. just by removing that, that certain fish. Right. This program is brought to you by Chef's Collaborative 
a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Well, um, turning now to our new administration, um, <laughs> and especially since the, um, is it Magnuson-Stevens or Magnus-Stevenson Act? Like you said, it has to be renewed this year, apparently. Um, so let's talk about uh, what you are, what you're, <laughs> there's no point in talking about any possible good news coming from the administration. So what are your worst case scenarios <laughs> vis-a-vis the Trump administration and the, and the re, you know, the re-upping of the sort of the equivalent of the aquatic farm bill? Right. So uh, Magnuson Stevens. Thank you. Um, the the latter named after the late senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, who was a real um, you know champion of the fishing industry up there. Right. Um, unlike the farm bill, it doesn't. You're not required to reauthorize it when the existing one expires. Hmm. Right. So the farm bill is every five years. There has to be a new one in that sixth year or, or whatever the cycle is. Yeah. Magnuson-Stevens is, is a little bit more lax where once it expires, it just carries on until a new one is authorized. Oh, I see. So we're still operating, even though we've passed the 10-year window on the last one, we're still operating under that one and we'll continue to do so um, until the new one gets passed. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I'm not a very... Uh, astute political operative, but there's a lot of theories about, um, you know, whether we should or should not try to reauthorize Magnuson in this type of political environment. Um, the, the good news about fish is that maybe compared to in other environmental or food issues, it's, it's pretty bipartisan. Um, and, and we also have the added benefit of having a lot of success stories in hand yeah. and having a lot of the tools at our disposable, disposal to, to do fisheries right. Uh-huh. And that makes it much easier to get allies on both sides of the aisle. So um, everybody wants successful, profitable, sustainable commercial fisheries. Once we have them, people are much better champions of protecting them. Uh, especially when they're they're happening in their own backyard. So that's encouraging. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know. Again, maybe maybe more so than some other issues that we're facing right now. That gives us a little bit of hope. Um, we know from the previous Congress and now again in the new Congress that there are going to be bills to reauthorize Magnuson. Um, although there are a lot of fisheries that are enjoying. Um, the success under new and better management. There are still fisheries that we haven't gotten right yet, and where fishermen and, or, and stakeholders in those places 
are not terribly happy about the current state of play. Mm. And so they're going to they're going to push their representatives to um, you know, potentially undermine a lot of the conservation provisions yeah. in the Magnuson Act that, you know, although we've we've made some tough decisions to get here, we have benefited in many cases from them. So I think, like we saw in the last Congress, and we will most likely see again in this Congress, uh, those things about rebuilding timelines, about, uh, you know, having legal requirements to stick to them, um, those are the things that are going to be most prominently in the crosshairs for the, for the, the stakeholder groups that really want to um, get a new Magnuson Act, one that's more favorable to um, easing short-term economic burdens and things of that nature. Well, does that would that include also, um, you know, messing with the cat share program? And also, I'm wondering how much the you know when the when the when the administration says that it wants to dismantle essentially the EPA, um, that would include elements that have an impact on the oceans, I would imagine. And so how much, you know, are the people who are supporting fisheries or supporting Magnuson, are they going to let that happen or are they going to sort of support the idea of um, acknowledging climate change and its impact on oceans and thus on fisheries? Did I make sense with that question? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, like, yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's going to... Uh, that's that's probably a whole show in and of itself. I'll, well, I'll try yeah. to uh, uh, I'll try to give you some short thoughts on on each of those components. So um, on the EPA point, um, EPA luckily for us working on fisheries doesn't really um, have much jurisdiction over fisheries, especially not uh, fisheries that happen in the ocean. Okay. Um, they may have some. They may have some say over fisheries and streams and lakes more from a hmm. pollution perspective than anything else. Right. Um, but in terms of federal fisheries management and most of the things that we've been talking about today, luckily EPA doesn't really factor into that. Oh, that is encouraging. <laughs> um, but to your to your other point, which is a really good one about the impacts of climate change and ocean acidification and ocean warming, obviously what happens with EPA on the regulatory front will have some impact on uh, on those things that are going on in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and we're really seeing those impacts in two ways. On the warming front, we're seeing fish stocks um, changing their territories, moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are fish that used to be caught um, only North Carolina and South that are now showing up in New Jersey and New York and Rhode Island and places like that and where fishermen haven't been used to catching them, but all of a sudden have things like black sea bass showing up in numbers greater than they've ever seen before. And it's great if you're a fisherman and a new type of fish shows up in your nets. Yeah. Um, it's not great if you're a fisherman and the fish that you used to rely on for your livelihood all of a sudden takes off and 
uh, is no longer <laughs> <disappears>. reliable. <laughs> Essentially disappears. And there you are right. with all your gear. Because I think, okay, don't, I mean, just as a quick aside, don't fishermen like buy the gear for the fish that they are targeting, essentially, the two or three species. There's specific gear that works for those and doesn't work for other fish. Am I right in that? And so, therefore, if your fish disappears and suddenly you're confronted with a whole new species, you may not necessarily actually even be able to fish for that species if you don't have the right gear. Is that is that a fair assessment? Right, or you might not have a permit for it, or you might not have oh, right. a quota for it, or, um, you know, depending on how it was managed in its old range and whether it's even managed at all in its new range. Um, these are really tricky issues that... Um, we're being forced to to kind of figure out in real time, and to their credit, a lot of um, a lot of the the management authorities and fisheries agencies are are tackling it head on. But some of these effects are happening so quickly mm. that um, being able to do the science uh, correctly and objectively is just taking way longer than uh, solutions are needed, and so. Um, that's really one big emerging hairy issue that we're dealing with right now. And the other one is on acidification, yeah. which is um, a really is already a really big issue for um, shellfish and crustacean fisheries. So if you're an oyster farmer or you're a crab fisherman or a lobster fisherman, mm-hmm. this is a really this is a really major issue and. Uh, we've seen a lot of those fishermen and fish farmers especially be really active advocates for action on climate change because they're they're seeing their um, they're seeing their resource and they're seeing their livelihoods change dramatically in front of them well literally be eaten away by acid <laughs> i mean those those animals are being you know yeah. eaten up by acidification um we only and have Noah, a- just to just to point out, NOAA Fisheries, which is the, the federal agency within the Commerce Department that um, is kind of the lead on fisheries science and fisheries management, they have, to their credit, put a lot of resources and research into monitoring technologies um, and mitigation technologies that these fishermen and fish farmers can can access and rely on to, uh, you know, for example, if there is a big blob of highly acidic water mm-hmm. uh, coming towards a fish farm in Puget Sound or, or in Maine, for example. Um, these fish farmers can not only get those updates ahead of time from NOAA, but also uh, change the way that their, uh, their, their water intakes are operating mm. uh, or even shut mm. them off so that they don't use that acidic water in their their operations. I didn't realize that water traveled in sort of pods of different pH balances. I had no <laughs> idea. See, you learn something. Yeah, we have all day. kinds of blobs of water in the ocean. There's warm blobs, there's acidic blobs, there's yeah. algal blobs, there's Amazing. you name it, we have a blob for it. <laughs> Um, how much, cause we, I know you need to leave in like three minutes. So I have one last question for you and then we'll, and then we'll promote the EDF and your, your work shamelessly, but how much can you, or can the EDF educate Congress or congressional representatives on the issues that face those fishing communities when they are completely committed to 
avoiding any discussion or mitigation of climate change. I only ask because I know that my own senator, Sheldon Whitehouse, um, delivers a 20-minute sermon probably every week on the impact of climate change. And one of his favorite themes is its impact on oceans and fisheries. And none of these people seem to mm-hmm. take that in. And so I'm just wondering, like, what, what is the, how does the EDF interact with Congress um, or does it interact with Congress in order to try to push forward the idea that actually climate change isn't just something uh, that's been made up by Chinese scientists, but is actually something that has an impact <laughs> on their constituents. <laughs> right. No, it's it's a great question, and I think one thing we've all learned in the last couple of months is that anyone who tells you they have the absolute answer to anything right now is mm. uh, either fooling themselves or outright lying to your face. Yeah. Um, and on fisheries, and, and we learned this lesson a long time ago, as have others, um, environmental advocates and conservation groups and, you know, fish nerds like me <laughs> think we're really smart and that whatever we tell people they're going to listen to. But the most effective advocates on these issues are the fishermen themselves. Right. And uh, we're lucky in that we work closely with a lot of fishermen and fishing organizations that get it and that uh, interact with their elected officials regularly and know know the things that are going to get them to act. Mm. And in a case like Senator Whitehouse, you can talk about these issues with him and say climate change and know that you're going to have a receptive audience. Yes. For other members, um, you know, the thing that's going to get them more activated is the fact that these impacts are going to cost revenue. Right or jobs, or livelihoods, or infrastructure, or whatever. And you may ultimately be talking about the same underlying issue. It's just the, the framing that you lead with is, is probably going to change depending on who's sitting across the table from you. Good to think about when you go to Congress to um, let your voice be heard in the halls of the powerful, because... <laughs> That's something that I'm planning on doing a lot of in the coming four years is like just, you know, walk around House of Representatives or the Senate floor and talk to the staffers and say, I don't like this or Mm -hmm. I want more of that Um, because otherwise they really don't listen. And I think it's, you know, I think this is like the new the new thing that we all have to do. You don't go to Washington to go to the Smithsonian anymore. You go to Washington to lobby Um, just (laughs) like there. Oh, yeah. Protesting is is now more popular in D.C. than 5Ks. So um, (laughs) it's a new social activity. Yeah. Right. Um, Tim, let us uh, promote because I know you got to go. So um, we will promote you shamelessly here. You can tell people how to learn more about fish, fishing, fisheries, and the work, the important work that you do. Um, so give them the heads up on, on all of that stuff. Where do they go to learn more about fisheries management and what you're doing with, um, with the industry? Yeah, um, probably the best, the best place is edf.org slash oceans. And for some of the seafood stuff that we were talking about before, eatthesefish.com. Eatthesefish.com. 
Take notes, people. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join me. I hope you'll come back soon. Let's talk again, like sometime in the summer um, and sort of review what's going on, uh, you know, as the administration unfolds. And in the meantime, I thank uh, my engineer, Dave, um, and uh, the Chef's Collaborative for sponsoring this program and so many others. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Take care now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.